Welcome to God is Open. I'm your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we're going to be talking about God's beard and wings. No, no, not God's bearded wings, but God's beard and God's wings, as found in the Bible. I'd like to first direct your attention to Psalms 89.25, and let's look at how metaphors work in the Bible. This is God talking, and he's talking about King David. He says this, I will set his hand, David's hand, on the sea, and his right hand on the rivers. So what this is talking about is not like God's going to be teleporting David places and just putting his hand under water and then his hands all wet. Instead, these are metaphors. They're, they're a, a statement, a visualization where one thing stands for the other. And you have a similar concepts that overlap between the picture that's being built and reality. There's got to be some sort of intersection. And so hand, in, and even in today's usage, we understand hands are capable. Hands can do things. Hands can fight. Hands can control. Hands mean power. And so we can see that when God is saying he will set David's hand on the sea, what he's saying is that he's going to give King David rulership all the way to the ocean. And this is what Adam Clark says in his commentary. He says this, This was literally fulfilled in David. Hand signifies power or authority. He set his hand on the sea in conquering the Philistines and extending his empire along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea from Tyre to Pelusium. So notice this. So this is not like an anthropomorphism. You know, people come across these texts and talk about uh, God will do such and such with his hand. And they'll say, oh, it's an anthropomorphism. It's just a, assigning human characteristics to God. No, that's not what this is. This is a metaphor. Likewise, those statements about God's hands are often metaphors that God's going to use his hands to protect someone and uh, someone uh, is going to be under the hand of God. These are metaphors. They're not anthropomorphisms. Anthropomorphism is a made-up concept. It's a made-up idiom that was specifically made up to reject biblical texts without having to explain them. Metaphors have meaning. Idioms have meaning. One thing is used to signify something else. There's overlap with reality. Whereas in this, this example, this metaphor, hand means power, and he's going to set his power over the sea. We understand that. We understand the overlap, what's going on there. This verse is not about if King David has hands or not. For all we know, King David has his hands chopped off in war. He doesn't have any hands. This verse is just not about if King David has hands. So that's another thing we need to keep in mind, that just because a metaphor uses an illustration, it doesn't mean that uh, the negation is true. So if we come across a text that says, God repents, and someone says, oh, that's idiomatic, or oh, that's anthropomorphism. Okay, what does that mean? What is that idiomatic expression being used to signify? What, where's the overlap with reality? That's, that's how words work. Should be communicating something of substance to the reader that the reader wouldn't have otherwise. Now, turning to talking about God's wings, Yahweh's wings, we find an interesting statement in Ruth 2.12 says this, the Lord repay you what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And so we could understand if this was idiomatic, what, what it means. Like uh, baby birds are protected by their mother's wings. Uh, birds use their wings as a symbol of might, power to scare away predators. And the wings are protection. And so we would understand this idiom if it is idiomatic language. Also, there's the, the expression in uh, what is Exodus where God bore the children of Israel out of Egypt on eagles' wings. And 
and <laughs> think about this. If we were to take that literally and not as an idiomatic expression, you think, oh, do they get to like ride eagles? Like, is it like the Hobbit where, you know, the, the Lord of the Rings where these eagles swoop in and carry everyone off and the eagles are carrying people and they're riding on the eagles' backs? Or maybe it's like Mad Max Beyond the Thunderdome where all the kids are on this uh, big uh, C-130 airplane and they're all standing on the wings. Maybe it's one giant eagle carrying all of Israel out of Egypt. But no, it's, it's, it's a flowery expression. It's a metaphorical expression to signify God using his power to act, his power to do something. Again, this is not about if God does or does not have wings. When we do a text search on wings in the Bible, we see a lot of references in the Psalms, a lot of references to God's wings. And this one, uh, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. Just kind of like the Ruth passage we already looked at, where wings is used in an idiomatic sense, meaning some sort of protection, some sort of cover, some sort of shelter, some sort of power act, power signal. And we see this used in the Psalms over and over, which makes sense because of just the genre that the Psalms are. Psalms are prayers to God. They use a lot of flowerly, hyperbolic type of language where they're trying to embellish what they're saying, embellish their praises to God, embellish their life in some sort of psalm, some sort of song, maybe some sort of poetic expression towards God because poeticism gives sentences, gives languages life. And that's what they're trying to communicate to God is life force, their life, their energy, their appreciation, their love, their desire, their thoughts, and uh, their emotions. This is one way to do that with language, using hyperbole, idioms, using metaphors. So just turning to Romeo and Juliet, we should all be familiar with Romeo and Juliet. Hopefully everyone's read it. I hope it's required reading in schools these days. But it says this, this is uh, Romeo talking. But soft, what light through yonder window breaks. It is the east, and Juliet is the sun. Arise, fair sun, and kill the envious moon. Notice how Juliet is being compared to the sun. She's radiant. She, she lights up the entire world. And look, the moon is a lesser, lesser being that's jealous of this sun. He's personifying the moon, saying that Juliet is greater than this moon, and the moon runs away in fear of her greatness. Poetic language. And we understand the meaning due to context he's not actually saying she's like a voluminous gas planet that's on fire and radiating light he's not talking about that it's a metaphorical use of the word and the language but notice how that works notice how idiomatic speech metaphors they just emphasize language and they allow us to communicate clearer deeper and more hyperbolic thoughts they they allow us to express emotion a lot better than static phrases using technical detailed language. And so always look at, at what type, what genre we're reading when we're reading the Bible, especially in, in things like wisdom literature, Job, Ecclesiastes. If we're looking in Proverbs, you don't want to take Proverbs as metaphysical absolutes. It says, always answer a fool according to their folly. And then it says, never answer a fool according to their folly. They contradict each other and they could do that because of the type of genre. They're rules of thumbs. They're like things your mom would say. That's that's the genre. And your mom is going to say things that are contradictory. And you just need to use your best judgment to figure out when things are applicable. Turning to Ezekiel, we got some interesting use of wings. This is in a vision of Ezekiel. And he sees these creatures in heaven. 
And let's describe these creatures. And the first one is incredibly interesting because we might be reminded of Marduk in, uh, in our Enuma Elish podcast, how Marduk looked and functioned. And we also might be reminded of the Greek god Janus, who had multiple faces so that he could always see behind him. It says this, And from the mist it came a likeness of four living creatures. He encounters four creatures. And what do they look like? Each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. And the four had their faces and their wings thus. Their wings touched one another. Each of them went straight forward without turning as they went. Winged, four-faced creatures. And these creatures, uh, another interesting part of this text, they dart to and fro. What kind of language does that remind you of? It reminds you of maybe the seven eyes that go out into the world and search around. These, These seven eyes are seven angels of the Lord. And also Satan in Job 1 is said to have been going to and fro on the earth. This to and fro language is used quite often about angelic beings, such as the seven eyes and the Satan in Job. And so these creatures are also going to and fro on the earth. And then with them comes these circles. And these circles, like a wagon wheel type deals, have are full of eyes all around. And eyes is a very ancient symbol for omniscience. A lot of times you find these multi-eyed gods, and these gods can see everything. And the eyes are just a, a symbolic of it, or they, they function as gathering all this information. In some sense, the gods with omniscience have those eyes. And these wheels have also wings. So wings is a very critical element in describing these creatures of God. God's creatures are winged creatures. So next we're going to turn to the book, The Mythology of All Races, Volume 5, The Semitic, by Stephen Herbert Lagdon. Let's talk about the Hebrews. Recall from Genesis, Abraham was a Hebrew. And Hebrew, although it eventually became synonymous with uh, children of Israel, Israelites, that wasn't the case. There was a people group, a nation group of Hebrews at the time of Abraham. And they worshipped a particular deity called El. Let's read this book. The Hebrew deity El, whose character as a sun god has been repeatedly mentioned, and whose name occurs also quite regularly in the plural Elohim, but employed as a singular, is the god of the Hebrew, a people who appear in various kingdoms and local city dynasties of Babylonia and Assyria from the 22nd century until the Kassite period among the Hittites, and as an invading warlike tribe in Syria, Phoenicia, and Canaan in the 15th and 14th centuries. I'm entering upon debatable ground here when I assume that the Hebrew and their god Iliae, plural, always written ideographically, are identical with the Hebrews and their god Elohim. There seems to be no doubt at all but that this is the case. Every argument against it has been spacious and without conviction. Accepting this thesis, the Hebrews have served for six centuries as mercenary soldiers and traders among the Babylonians, Assyrians, Hittites, Mennonites, Armenians, before they entered and occupied Canaan. And granted that their persistent use of Elani, Hebrew, the Hebrew gods, is in reality a singular, like the Hebrew Elohim, it follows that it is identical with the Hebrew god El, Ela, Elohim. Phoenician also uses the word gods as singular. 
This is a common usage among the Canaanitish scribes of the period of the Hebrew invasions into Syria and Palestine. So, for example, the Shuwar data of Kelti calls Pharaoh, my God and my son. In the text, actually, my gods and my Salmash, a man of Quidish in northern Syria, writes to Pharaoh, attributing his defeat of the invading Hebrew to the fact that his godhead and sonship went out before his face. Here the plural Ilanu is used as an abstract noun, as is also the word God Chamash. In Hittite, the Hebrite god is also called Ilian Hebraeus Hebrees, the Hebrite gods. That the Hebrites, or as I assume the Hebrews, in the days of their wanderings in Babylonia from the days of Abraham the Hebrew and Hammurabi had a deity known to the peoples with whom they came in contact as the Hebrew god is provided by a list of nine gods and goddesses worshipped in the temple of Adad at the old capital of Assyria. In a text at least as old as the 12th century, here the singular Elu Hebrew occurs, which I take not to mean the god Hebrew, but the Hebraite god, or, if Elu is here, as the Ilani Hebrai, a specific name of a deity, El, the Hebraite El. The genitive and accusative of this gentelic word is Hebri, and the nominative plural should be Ilani Hebri, or Hebrew Elohim, in the text of the Hittite capital. So he's making the case that this old ancient people group who used to worship this god El are actually the Hebrews worshiping El. Remember in Exodus, God says to the people, you used to worship me as El Shaddai, now you will know me as Yahweh. There's a pretty good case that the Hebrews, a mercenary group who invaded uh, Canaan and Assyria and was a warlike tribe, were the Hebrews and they worshiped El. And this was their national god that they worship. So it's, it's very interesting to me, anytime any ancient religions have an El god, a god known as El, I, I try to take a look at their depictions of El and how he operates within their mythology to see if there's any parallels to Yahweh of the Bible, who is also called El in the Bible, or Elohim, plural, as was often the case. And this is not just a Hebrew thing, as we find in the text here. What this guy argues is that that is a pretty common common uh, idiom to use a plural for a singular god. Stephen Lagden argues that uh, the conception of El, this primary god, was pretty common to all Semitic races and all Semitic peoples. And there's a lot of overlap in the de different deities, the, the Baals, the, the Els, the the Mardukes are also called El. He says there's overlap and there's leakage and one's depicted as another. And all, all the primary gods are called El. He says this, among the Armenians, Phoenicians, and Canaanites, El seems to have become a special name for Shamash due to the preponderant importance of this deity. Later on, he talks about a coin that was found which depicts L and on this depiction of L has multiple wings and recall our de description of the creatures that are identified in Ezekiel who have multiple wings and multiple faces. This L on this coin says this, he has four eyes, two behind and two before, two of which are closed in sleep. On his shoulders are four wings, two in the act of flying and two reposing at rest. The symbol meant that while he slept, he also watched, and while he flew, he also rested. Remember those creatures in Ezekiel. They have four faces, 
and four pairs of wings so they could fly any direction without uh, having to make any turns. And in this case, in this depiction, this creature has four eyes so two can rest while two work and four wings so two can rest while two work. Same type of conception. These multiple eyes and faces going on in these depictions. And this is of L. So keep that in mind. There are also depictions of Yahweh with wings. So here's a depiction of a seal and this seal, th this is what it says about it. This seal has been published by Bordui, uh, 1986, number 58. The interpretation of the sacroboid has presented a number of difficulties. The Hebrew inscription seems to have been added later on and is not clearly distinguishable, reading a highly doubtful Yahwehazel. Furthermore, the seal is unique in its iconography and thus should be used cautiously for far-reaching conclusions. To remain with our example, B58 shows a religious representation in which its Judean owner might have recognized Yahweh and the Queen of Heaven, the Ashur, possibly identified with Ashura. But as the seal remains unique for the time being, we have no other documentary evidence to test such a hypothesis against other documentary evidence. So this seal is said to depict a winged Yahweh. And uh, it looks like the Hebrew inscription was added later, which might tell us that in the Second Temple time period, people were adopting these, these winged representations and uh, pulling them over from other cultures and saying this is Yahweh God of Israel. While I got it pulled up and we went over this Mark Smith passage in our podcast on Yahweh the name of God, he, he talks about the Exodus 6 2 through 3 passage in which God says that you know I used to be known to you guys as El Shaddai but now I will be known as Yahweh forever forth. And he says this, in this passage Yahweh appears to Moses and God said to Moses, I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as El Shaddai. But by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. This passage reflects the fact that Yahweh was unknown to the patriarchs. Rather, they worshipped the Canaanite god El. Inscriptional texts from Deir Allah, a site north of Jericho, across the Jordan River, attest to the epithets Shaddai. In these inscriptions, the Shaddai epithet is not applied to the great god El. The author of Exodus 6, 2-3 perhaps did not know of or make this distinction. Rather, he identified Yahweh with the traditions of the great Canaanite god El. So God is identified with El in the Bible. And this author believes that this is evidence of uh, assimilation of Canaanite ideas into Hebrew religion. And you could take that with a grain of salt. He's, he's a critical scholar. But we do understand from the Bible this changing of names, this, this identification with El and El Shaddai, and then that, that being the same God as Yahweh. As Mark Smith points out, and especially in uh, this repeated, God of gods is Yahweh, which is really El of Elohim is Yahweh, and this identification of El and Yahweh. And El in all these religions was depicted with wings, which is interesting. It's interesting. You don't, you don't get uh, pictures of God really in Israelite history. It, they're, they're few and far between because one of the Ten Commandments was, you shall make no images of God. Mankind was supposed to be God's image. And so sparsely, few and far between, we find depictions of the Yah or the Yahweh. 
So what we're looking at here is a coin found in Gaza dated to around the 4th century and it depicts Yahweh sitting on what looks like a chariot or a wheel with wings. A wheel with wings. That kind of sounds like our Ezekiel passage in which he encounters a wheel with eyes and wings, the one we already read. And so Yahweh in, on this coin is depicted as a grown man with a beard, kind of like you would see in modern conceptions, drawings of who God is, always the bearded white guy. This is their depiction. So maybe these images that we come up with nowadays, they have some sort of basis for where these images are derived. And this image of Yahweh or El, we've, we've already seen that is pretty common in these different religions depicting Yahweh or El, and there are some other religions who worship a Yahweh-type God, they always depict them as kind of the same picture, the same image. Here's a guy named Walter Reinhold Wartig Matfield. You know he's uh, pretty smart because he's got a whole bunch of names. But he writes about Yahweh slash Elohim's wings. And he pulls out all the Psalms passages that we kind of went over, and you know we, we determined they're kind of idiomatic. But he's, he says this, I've noted that Egyptian and Mesopotamian art at times renders gods and goddesses with and without wings. Thus, while a late Bronze Age L at Ugarit does not possess wings, he apparently does in later Phoenician art forms of the Iron Age and Hellenistic eras. And this is a pretty good article to read through because he talks about a lot of the same things that we've, we've discussed. He even quotes from the mythology of all races which uh, is actually how I found this article. I was, I, was, I was trying to research this mythology of all races, Semitic Volume 5, and see what's out there, and uh, he's referencing that. But he shows these depictions of winged elves and uh, the winged Yahweh here, this uh, seal that we already went over. This author also makes the case that there is Yahweh worship in Phoenicia at the time. He writes this after discussing how a lot of different kings seem to have their names named after Yahweh. Interesting is this Yahweh Milk, Yahweh MLK. Remember how we talked about the Moloch sacrifice and how those were sacrifices to Yahweh within uh, the Hebrew Bible? But we get this name, this combination of Yahweh and Moloch, often in Phoenician forms. And he says this, he writes this, not only do the Phoenicians have king and kings appear to be bearing Yahweh form names, the Phoenicians also show their male and female gods seated on winged sphinx thrones, which have been identified by some scholars as prototypes behind Yahweh's cherubim throne in the Jerusalem temple. It should come across as no surprise then that if the kings of Byblos bore Yahweh's names and showed their gods seated on cherubim thrones, that perhaps... Phoenicia is one of the sources of the Yahweh imagery appearing in the Bible, which is the case. Uh, Michael Heiser even talks about how a lot of this, these depictions are probably, he calls them polemical against these other religions. The problem is, is how do you determine if something's polemical or if they're being serious? These depictions of God in which uh, Daniel is brought up to the throne room, in which uh, Isaiah is brought up to the throne room, are they accurate? Are they visions? Is this polemical? Is uh, in the case of Isaiah, is it, it's, it seems to me physical because he has to go through a purification process in order to see God. So that seems like an actual transportation incident. Turning to Isaiah to take a look at this encounter with God, it says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, 
and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, winged imagery again. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Remember how we talked about how there's some that uh, serve other purposes in these depictions of these multi-winged beings, especially the, the four-faced beast that flew to different directions, and also in depictions of Marduk and depictions of El in certain religions. Down in verse 5, uh, Isaiah gets real worried because he thinks he's going to die because he saw God. He saw God, and no one's supposed to see God and live. He says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hands a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, your sin atoned for. So Isaiah has a pre-Jesus atonement of his sins such that he can see God on the throne, which is an amazing circumstance and events. And it tells us a lot about the nature of no one being able to see God. It's not that like no one can have a visual representation of God in their eyes. It's just you will die in some fashion if you do see God, unless there's some sort of atonement that takes place. It's not that God can't have a form or anything like that. And uh, go back to our Bodies of God podcast where God just doesn't have one form. He has many forms. And uh, some forms can be seen and some forms cannot be seen. And these forms that cannot be seen are cannot be seen because the people die unless they're clean. And after they're clean, they can see the forms. But now turning to Daniel 7, we have another encounter with God in his throne room. This is Daniel. He says, As I looked, the thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. This is really interesting to me because it's a depiction of God. It describes what he looks like. He has a hair of pure wool. So what does that mean? Is it the same beard that we find in pagan religions? Here's an Ugaritic depiction of El, and you see he has a horned helmet on and a beard. He's sitting in a throne, and it looks like he's handing some sort of instrument to an individual. Back to the Mark Smith book, he talks about the, this, this beard, this possible beard that we find in Daniel. He writes this, In Israel, the characteristics and epithets of El became part of the repertoire of descriptions of Yahweh. In both texts and iconography, El is an elderly, bearded figure enthroned, sometimes before individual deities, sometimes before the divine council, known by a variety of expressions. This feature is attested also in Phoenician inscriptions. In one source, I'm not going to read all the source, El is called the Ageless One. So that, 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 that phrase I always look for in the Bible where God is a God of years, stuff like that. Uh, those have parallel phrases in other religions, the ageless one, uh, the God who's eternal, right? Anat and Asherah both affirm the eternity of his wisdom. His eternity is also expressed in this epithets, ab Sinum, father of years. In a different source, Asherah addresses El, you are great, O El, indeed wise. Your hoary beard instructs you, and hoary's like, a gray or aged beard, maybe it's a white beard. So maybe this Daniel depiction of this pure wool hair is a gray or white elderly beard going on there. Annette's threats likewise mention El's gray beard. Similarly, Yahweh is described as the aged patriarchal God. 
Psalms 102.28, Job 36.26, Isaiah 40.28. He goes on, it says this, He's enthroned amidst the assembly of divine beings. 1 Kings 22, Isaiah 6, and he, he, he gives more references. Later biblical texts continued the long tradition of an aged Yahweh enthroned before the heavenly hosts. Daniel 7, 9-14 and 22 described a bearded Yahweh as the Ancient of Days, the Most High. He is enthroned amidst the assembly of the heavenly hosts, called in verse 18 the Holy Ones of the Most High. This description for the angelic host derives from the older usage of the Hebrew Kedoism, the Holy Ones, for the Divine Council. The tradition of an enthroned bearded god appears also in Persian period coin marked Yahad, Yehud. The iconography belongs to a god, apparently Yahweh. And that's the coin that we already discussed. And so what, what do we get from all this? What, what, what's the point? So in ancient Semitic religions, their primary god, whoever he was, often called El, sometimes called Yahweh in Phoenician religion and in Israelite religion, was some sort of deity enthroned with some sort of beard and sometimes depicted with wings sometimes without to what extent did the biblical authors accept this as literal depictions of god versus uh, metaphors that that's a very good question and and why was israel at some point depicting god with a body in some context and where's the old testament speaking out against this Remember, mankind is made in the image of God. Mankind tells us what God looks like. Mankind tells us about who God is, how God acts, how God thinks. Mankind is the image of God. So it's, it's not surprising that you're going to have these very common images ascribed to Yahweh in the Bible of an enthroned deity surrounded in his host in, in a divine council sort of setting, sometimes with wings, sometimes without, and sometimes you know, sometimes we understand the metaphor. Sometimes it's not so clear if it is a metaphor or if it's a physical description of Yahweh. I guess the bigger point to this podcast is when we come to the Bible and we find these texts, such as in Daniel 7, which describes God and his features, instead of automatically dismissing it, we need to step back and say, hey, this was a common trope at the time. This was a common understanding of parallel gods, the, the Els and the Yahwehs of the world. And so we can't just throw it in the trash. We can't just say this this is uh, the body parts or whatever. Uh, we can't believe in those because they don't fit our understanding of God. We I just saw this on a Facebook forum. Someone posted, we, we know God wasn't walking in the garden in Genesis 3 when it says that Yahweh was walking for a cool stroll during the day, like during the coolness of the day as if God was getting some pleasure from the environment that he's walking through. He says, obviously that's not true. Obviously that's not true. That's not obviously not true. That seems like a pretty common understanding of the Israelite God in the Bible, that God can experience these things. That Yahweh can eat with Abraham in Genesis 18, could sit down and have a meal. Those are things he can do. So we can't be so dismissive of the text. We need to step back and say, what if this text is meant to be literal? Or even if the text is idiomatic, what if the idiomatic expression mirrors something that they view in Yahweh? Can Yahweh have wings? Well, his angels have wings. And uh, he surrounds himself with beings with wings. And why can't he have wings? 
just because he's never mentioned with wings? What if Israelite conceptions had him having wings like parallel deities in other religions? We, we shouldn't be so quick to judge what is, uh, what, what's metaphor and what's real or dismissing what could be real based on what is metaphor. We need to step back and, and act with more objectivity when coming to the Bible. So hopefully you like this type of stuff. This, uh, it's always interesting to me to look at comparative religions. And these ancient religions are incredibly interesting. They're depictions of these pantheons, these parallels to Yahweh and El in the Bible. And what if their conceptions are similar? What if they're worshiping the same God? Are they these guys pagans anymore? Are they worshiping the wrong God because they've uh, they've merged different deities together and now although they in name worship El and Yahweh they're worshiping a different god what's going on here interesting questions to ponder anyways if you like the podcast leave a little message or start a thread on God is open we could talk these issues out thank you for listening